Welcome to Wah Wonders Why, a companion podcast to smart enough to know better. This episode is titled, What What the Philosophy Philosophy Compromise. In the last episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, I was talking about empathy, about how it seems that having too much empathy can sometimes lead to aggressive behavior that can also lead to people not being able to compromise. One of our listeners Von Explano on Twitter got in contact and said, We must compromise? Meet me in the middle, says the unjust man. You step forward, he steps back. Meet me in the middle, says the unjust man. And then he said, Compromise would be a great wild wonders why with humanity's favorite philosopher and SE2KB regular. Of course he means Kevin Lowe. And you know, this is a great idea. So I shelved my other project for Wow Wonders Why and contacted Kevin immediately to talk about the concept of compromise. Whenever I find life confusing, whenever the world just becomes this morass of ethics and morals that I just can't cut through or, or even fathom, there's only one person I can turn to, and that's... Smart enough to know better's resident philosopher, Mr. Kevin Lowe. Kevin, thank you for saving me once again. Thank you. You're too kind. Although, like most philosophers, I tend to end up in a position where we're more complicated than we started with, rather than (laughs) making everything clear. But (laughs) as we say in philosophy, I like to end up confused on a higher level. So (laughs) I would love it if we could have a conversation about compromise and end up confused about compromise on a higher level than where we started, confused about deeper and more important nuances of compromise than the the low (laughs) level at which people are normally confused about compromise. Brilliant. Thank you very much. As you said, we're talking about compromise, the concept of compromise. Should we compromise or should we steadfastly stand and say, I am right, you are wrong, and therefore when the world comes to my side, it'll be a better world? Well, there's actually a certain amount of philosophical literature on compromise. uh, And if I'm going to use really broad strokes, we sort of divide up into compromise about facts Mm -hmm. and compromise about ethical conclusions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking about compromise about facts. Suppose we go to dinner and you having a fine mathematical mind, you add up in your head the cost of everything that everyone has purchased, divide it evenly amongst all participants and say, we all owe 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, at this stage, you might be 99.9% certain you're right because you have a finely tuned mathematical mind. You are a science teacher. You do arithmetic all the time. time. Uh, But then suppose an epistemic peer, uh, someone who you consider (laughs) about on the same level as yourself in terms of maths ability says i've done the maths and i think it's 48 dollars each now at this point if you know nothing else i ideally get a calculator and check it but at this point no you should be cast into uncertainty because here is someone who is as smart as you are they have access to the same information that you do Mm. they've come to a different conclusion and so if you consider this person an exact equal you should go from 99.9 percent certainty in your own correctness to all the way down to 50 50 because you're as likely to be wrong as the other person is likely mm. to be wrong. Mm. Uh, but it's easy enough to do in this case where I've laid it out in a nice non-threatening way, but it gets really emotionally threatening. If you're walking down the street being a fundamentalist Christian and someone comes up to you and say, hey, God's just a fairy story that they made up to keep people in line. Mm. Now, the same reasoning should apply, 
you know, they could be right. You could be wrong. You should be going to go 50 50 in your mm. belief in God, uh, all else <laughs> being equal. If you respect this person you've talked to, if you think, you know, they've spend as much time thinking about this as I have. Mm. Uh, they're as smart as I am. So not, I should not, now not go... a random person. So in this case, it'd have to be someone that you cared for. It's like someone that you know or that you respect. Indeed. So an epistemic peer, an equal right. in terms of access to truth about the universe. Okay. Uh, but we don't do this. What happens is people get angry and go, no, I'm not going to change my beliefs mm-hmm. uh, because that's something that is a key to people's self-perception uh, if atheists think part of what makes them an awesome person is that they're an atheist they haven't been fooled by the lies of religion mm. and meanwhile the christians uh and the muslims and everyone else they think they're awesome because they zoroastrians sorry yeah i they decided all, i want to be a zoroastrian if i side, side note if i ever get, decide to get into religion i want to be a zoroastrian just so that i can get sky, sky burial and get picked apart by birds but i think i have to be born into it i don't think i can become a zoroastrian sorry i just that's just my mm. thing <laughs> and, um, but they think what makes them an awesome person is they have faith and they're going to heaven and they mm. go to church. They do all this good stuff. Uh, and so it's very hard, uh, impossible in practice for most people to suddenly flip to 50-50 factual belief just because they've encountered someone else who might uh, has an equal claim mm. to be right about things. Uh, but you know, I think as a philosopher, that's something that you know, we should take pretty seriously because when two people disagree, half the time, it's going to be us that's wrong, uh, statistically, mm. uh, unless you've got some reason to think there's something you're specially informed about. Uh, so, yeah, when you How? encounter an epistemic peer with a difference of opinion, you should go, well, okay, everything's up in the air uh, now. I'm uncertain. In the real world, though, listeners, think about this for a moment. How often, if you're talking about something you like, whatever it is, and you're pretty confident about it, and then someone, even if they're equal to you in that area, you, you both like Superman comics, and someone says, oh, you say, oh, I remember then comic blah, blah, when Superman fought blah, and they went off to this planet and had a great old time. And they're like, well, actually, it wasn't that planet. It was this planet. You normally, in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm pretty certain I'm right. I'm pretty certain. Even even though that person's an expert, you kind of go, no, 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 that's, no, no, that's wrong. Because mm, we have all these memories in our mind that support our belief. And mm. up against all of these memories and associations in our mind supporting belief, we've just got the unsupported word of this person who's mm. saying something that we don't want to be right. Yes. I mean, I've, I get this myself. When people contradict me, I don't want them to be right. I mean, on a sort of high intellectual level, if I'm wrong, I want to know so I can be a more perfect human being. Uh, but in that moment, you know, I'm hoping it turns out that I'm the one who's right because <laughs> I would feel much better about myself yes. after that. Yeah, right. And, you know, I think. The kind of people who spend all their time uh, listening to podcasts and reading books and learning on some of it's partially because we want to be right more often. Uh, we want to be less mm. often the idiot who gets corrected and more often the smart and thoroughly appreciated person who goes, <laughs> well, actually, here are the facts. Everyone goes, uh-huh. oh, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you, Kevin. You've given us the facts. <laughs> it's interesting. I, um, I think in the past, I used to be more like that. That's, that's very, that would, if you asked me 20 years ago, well, I wouldn't have ex- agreed with it 20 years ago, but if I think back 20 years ago, that's, that's where I was. I wanted to be right because I wanted to get that little brush of, I'm better than everyone. As I've got older and angrier, uh, I, I think not so much. I don't think as much anymore about that. It's not that I want to be right all the time. It's when I'm wrong, I realize I don't understand it as well as I did. And that frustrates me. It's, it's like missing a piece of the puzzle. It's, I think, maybe I'm just trying to up big note myself, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not right to feel better about myself. It's right so that I go, oh, now I understand that thing. Great. Okay. I've, one day I'll have this entire universe mapped out properly. I think maybe get back to me in 20 mm-hmm. more years and I'll, and I'll, I'll update that. 
Mm. We're veering into psychology rather than philosophy, so I'm gleefully yes. leaping outside my area. But I think maybe it has, may have something to do with insecurity that when you're a young person making your way in the world, you seek security and power uh, and amassing facts is one of uh, knowing the truth is one way of doing that. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you get a bit older, a bit more secure in your life. It doesn't you know, your ego isn't as threatened by being wrong about one thing because you're right about so many other things. Mm. And so you can be a bit more comfortable about admitting when you're wrong or just admitting you don't know. And also, also I'm a sexy. Also, I'm as sexy as the day is long. So that's always, you know, that's a big benefit. So you you know, yeah, you've got that going for you. I do. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) I can be wrong about this fact because look at me. I mean, look at look at Mm. all this. Anyway, so um, yeah, I think. All of us, including myself, we're not as good as we should be at shifting gears when we encounter a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, it's one thing if you have a really well-informed opinion. Uh, If you spent the last 20 years reading papers on climate science and conversing with other climate scientists, you've probably got a pretty well-informed opinion. If some rando on the Internet disagrees with you, you shouldn't jump to 50-50 belief in uh, your climate change related beliefs because they're not an epistemic peer. You've got a uh, sound basis for thinking you know more about this than the rando. Uh, but if it's something you don't know about, if you're outside your area of expertise and someone who, for all you know, is as well informed as you are, contradicts you, uh, we should immediately you know, back that up and go, OK, I'm cast into a state of uncertainty. Mm. I don't know what to believe anymore. And it's and in in my mind, I try and say when that happens to me, I try and say, what are your sources? Where's that coming from? So hmm. someone says, oh, actually, uh, the bushfires in Australia are due to burning practices, not climate change. And I try not to go, I'll kill you. I try and go, where does that come from? And then you find the sources and you go, that seems right or wrong. It's, it's very wrong, by the way, but <laughs> it seems to be wrong. So but that's I try in my mind. That's why I try and find the sources because I don't know them. But it's not about what I believe. It's about the the facts that I'm putting forward that hopefully have been peer-reviewed by experts. I would hmm, agree with that. Uh, although I think in the era of Facebook, it's very easy to feel like you're an expert because you've read three different pop science articles all saying <laughs> the same thing. Yes. And you think, well, I've got three different sources. I've got the, the Guardian and New Scientist on my side. <laughs> I'm an expert. Yeah. And, well, you know, they're both they're better than uh, tabloid sources, but you're not really an expert if you just read a couple of mm. pop science papers. But social media has this way of making you feel like you're an expert because it feeds you data points that are consistent with the one you've already seen mm. and so uh, you build this picture and you know that's fine with me because my social media feed only informs me and only tells me true things it's those <laughs> other idiots who are constantly being fed misinformation by the social media feed and have a sculpted reality which is just wrong um but you know i people uh discover you know when election results come in and things like that you know they're convinced that the election is going to go their way because mm. how could it not mm. there are all these mm. stunningly good reasons to vote for my candidate yep. and no good reasons to vote for the other candidate and then you know 51 of the population gets out and votes the other way and people's minds are blown because yep. uh, they the other people just aren't sharing the same you know, epistemic knowledge base mm. uh it seems rational to them to vote one way uh and you don't see that because you're in this social media bubble mm. that and obviously that happened very much in 2016. I think it, that was when the American, um, um, uh, what do you call it, presidential election. So that was that really freaked people out because, I mean, my bubble was very much going, Hillary Clinton has won easily. Not just won, she has won easily. And I learned a lot about the world the day that she did not win because I was actually shocked. I remember coming out, I just finished doing a talk, a science talk somewhere, and I checked my phone 
I'd been like out of contact of the universe for three hours and went, oh my God. And it was, it wasn't just, oh, uh, what an interesting fact I've learned about the world. There's a new president and it's Donald Trump. There was actually a, this, no, wait, everything I understand is wrong because I was fed this concept of, and, but that was because people like Nate Silver and all these amazing people who had done the research and said it was definitely Hillary Clinton. And, and now in one way, it's a good thing. And don't, no one, no one beat me up for that because now I've gone, oh, we really need to keep an eye on these bubbles. We need to understand this bubble that I lived in. Don't live in that bubble anymore. I've tried to spread my bubble out a bit more and go, right, what was I missing? Where were the inputs? How do I learn that? Like, yeah, anyway, it was, it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. Thank God it's all blown over mm. now and there's no problems. Phew. <laughs> yeah, so uh, okay, that's compromising on facts you know, with an epistemic peer. Yes. Uh, and obviously if someone is much better informed than you and smarter there and you believe they're acting in good faith, because all of this discussion so far is about a good faith agent where yes. yep. you n- have reason to believe or ideally reason to know that the other person is honestly representing their beliefs about the world. So if there is a good faith epistemic superior, an expert in the field, and they come up and say X is true, then you should say, I'm almost certain you're right. Mm. Uh, And Mm. if you are the epistemic superior, if you've got your area of expertise, you've been researching this for a few years and a rando shows and says, I don't know anything about that, but I read on the internet Mm. uh, and, then you should say, no, you're not an epistemic peer. I don't need to change my views because you say so. Uh, I've got the evidence on my side. Yes. Uh, where it gets tricky, though, well, and I, I believe one of your... Well, just to yes. stop for a moment, just, I just want to break in because there's something... Um, it's a simple version of this. I'm glad you said that because the simple, in my mind, I, I've come down to saying, in Australia, we have this idea that uh, Jack is as good as his master concept, that, that everyone's equal. There's this weird egalitarian thing, which is a total garbage on a classes level and, and monetary level and social capital. It's, it's a lie. But we love it as Australians to, to spread this untruth, I feel. Uh, and this idea that, that Jack is as good as his master, so therefore, just because I think something about astronomy doesn't mean that the person who um, is a swimming instructor shouldn't be able to espouse on astronomy and be equal to me and i find that really frustrating because i go well no i probably know more about astrophysics than the average swimming instructor on the other hand you ask me how to do a butterfly stroke well i wouldn't even know how to start so you go to the expert and and yeah i find it weird that people can't seem to accept that I, what I find really weird about it is that this assumption that Jack is as good as their master seems to be highly domain specific, that uh, if I'm reading a book and someone says, Kevin, can you tell me what's the first pa- word on page 40? And I look it up and I say it's potato. Mm. They'll accept that. They say they can't see the word. I can. They're happy to believe I've got more authority. N- mm. No worries there. Uh, if I'm an automobile mechanic and they're not, then they're usually happy to believe what I tell them about their engine as long as it's consistent with their own observations. Mm. They've observed the engine is rattling. I say this connection's loose and that's why it's rattling. No, they're happy. Mm. Uh, but when it comes to science, for some reason, mm. uh, people or philosophy, people seem happy to jump <laughs> in and just say, well, you have been studying this subject for decades, but I have an opinion and I want to tell you that you're wrong. And I think that it's really interesting how in some areas they feel completely happy to do that. And others, they would never dream of it because they understand this person knows more about sport trivia or sport history than they do. Or mm. this person knows more about uh, putting in electrical wiring than they do. Mm. Now, you're not going like, to push the sparky aside and say, out of the way, mate, I know better than you how to wire my house. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, that would be a pretty unusual uh but if a 
philosopher or scientist pops in and says, this is my area of expertise. Here's how it is. Uh, some people, I think, I'll take them on. Yeah. And especially that I've noticed just a, once again, a side note on the side note. If you're a woman, it happens a lot more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're a woman expert, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. All right. So we, we keep going on side notes, but you're saying that's all about facts. But now we're going to go into compromise and um, opinions, I guess. Well, yeah, ethical views. And this is trickier because uh, some philosophers like Immanuel Kant, uh, who is one of the uh, founding fathers of the idea that all people are created equal or all people should be treated equally in some sense, uh, alike in human dignity or all men are created equal, uh, phrases like that. Mm. And now, these are slogans or simplified stories. I don't think anyone believes all people are really equal in the sense that I can't <laughs> run as fast as Usain Bolt mm. and I have less money uh, than billionaires and so on. No, there are people smarter than me and people stronger than me and faster than me, uh, but we're all equal in this sort of abstract sense. Mm. And it's a bit hard to explain you know, in what way are we supposed to all be equal. Mm. And I think uh, the sense is that uh, we should all – count for the same amount as like our lives have inherent value. That's the same for everyone. My life is just as valuable as the life of a billionaire or mm. something like that. Mm. Uh, that's the idea that we're trying to, that people are sort of gesturing towards with this, uh, all people are equal or all people are alike in dignity story. Yeah. But um, test that very quickly. I've, I've tested this. Uh, that goes down the gurgler very fast, especially with parents, because suddenly if you said, look, we're all, in the, we're all in the crashing elevator and we all have to work at who's going to get on top of the pile to survive. We're cushioned by our corpses. Everyone will say the child. They're not going to say, well, actually, Greg, we think you're more valuable than our kid. Mm. <laughs> and it's, I, know, I know that's a can of worms I opened up there for no real reason. But I, and I'm not saying it's wrong. It's, it's interesting. You go, well, suddenly, obviously, you're not equal. Someone's genetic children, like their, their genetic lineage is much more important than you right now. Uh, in fact, they mm. will they will kill you to get to, to potentially kill you. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's yeah. No, I think uh, it's an interesting side note, and I think part of what's going on there is that uh, you're making a leap there, or we are making a leap together uh, between what we refer to as everyday ethics and lifeboat ethics. Oh, okay. uh, in every right. everyday ethics assumes a situation where there is enough food and oxygen and water and everything else to go around so no one's going to die or anything. Mm. Uh, and then we make up ethical rules as to how best to live our lives in this environment. Mm. Uh, but in a lifeboat scenario, the ship's going down. There's room for 10 on the lifeboat. There are 50 years on the ship. Mm. 40 people are going to die. Mm. And we've got to make mm. some tough decisions. And in maybe in that scenario it starts to make sense to try figuring out okay we're going to have to differentiate people somehow we can't say that everyone's life is equal because we're going to have to make a choice here <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and but if we're not in that lifeboat scenario there's no pressing reason to try and figure out whose life is more valuable i mean we don't sit around at you know amateur theater events or the dinner table going who do you think's life is more valuable you or me my love and say oh well i think me oh. darling i mean Oh, I don't yeah. know. I've been to some amateur theatre where I've gone, my life is much more valuable than that person on stage right now. Fair point, fair point. But <laughs> generally speaking, yeah, in a situation of plenty, we don't have to worry about that. And it yeah. makes a sense in as a sort of uh, convenient assumption or facade, perhaps just this polite assumption that everyone's life is equally valuable because we don't have to make any decisions. Okay. Uh, but then you get tough situations like uh, there are two people in hospital. They both need a replacement kidney to live. Mm. We've got one replacement kidney. Mm. Uh, 
we can't cut it in half for the sake of this scenario. Only one of them is going to get it. Mm. Uh, at that point, you could toss a coin. That would be one notionally just way of doing it. But other people want to look at things like what are the prognosis for each of them? Mm. This one is an alcoholic who killed his last liver drinking huge amounts of alcohol and has shown no signs of recovery and would kill this one real quick. Mm. Uh, the other person uh, got shot in the kidney while heroically throwing themselves in front of the Wayne family so that their son <laughs> would not become a vigilante. <laughs> and with this kidney, he will have another 30 years of healthy life. Mm. Uh, and people are happy to start making those sorts of differentiations because it is a life or death scenario. It's a life boat situation. Mm. Uh, and you can find some differences that we think are morally relevant. Okay. Uh, so the lift suddenly lifeboat ethics and, you know, lifeboat ethics. Yeah. You've got to make some tough decisions and you, know, you could just draw lots. And, you know, there's some you know, stories of people doing this, you know, people in a lifeboat, someone's got to be killed and eaten mm. so that mm. the rest can live. So they draw lots and whoever gets the short straw goes, fair enough, gentlemen, uh, please go you know, kill me humanely and eat me. Well yes. played, well played. I accept this. And I think there was an incident. I should remember the names, but I don't uh, of another uh, English crew where the boat was going down. There were a limited number of people in the lifeboat, uh, room in the lifeboat, and the captain said, the strongest men will go in the boat because they are the most likely to survive. They were no, mm. thousands of miles from civilization. Uh, if they took 10 randos from the crew rather than the 10 best rowers, uh, those 10 randos were much less likely to live mm. than the elite. So he said, in order to maximize the number of expected lives saved, what we do is the strongest, fittest, best rowers, and me, the captain, of course, of you course. need me, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. jump in the lifeboat and start rowing like hell. Everyone else is left behind to drown. Sure. Uh, and we know about this story because they, in fact, made it, uh, which <laughs> uh, in some sense you know, vindicates the mm. decision. Uh, I'll give you, I'll give you uh, an example. My, um, my mother, I, once I asked my mother, which, which of us three children, if you had to save – if the family was like the house on fire, who would you save in the house sort of thing? And my mother looked at me and she looked around at my two sisters and we looked back and she went, your father. I was like, sorry, but your father, we can make more of you, but he's irreplaceable. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, mm. oh, harsh, harsh lady, harsh. Mm. I learned a valuable lesson that day. <laughs> mm. Uh, so going back to moral compromise. Okay, yes. so I was talking about Immanuel Kant, and he was absolutely against any form of moral compromise. His view of the moral world was straightforward. You figure out moral rules using pure logic. Mm. He thought you could do this. Mm. And once you figured out a moral rule, like don't tell lies and don't steal and don't murder, you just never, ever do that thing, though the heavens fall. Uh, if you put I in a bizarre situation. He yeah. sounds great. Yeah, he's, he's loads of fun. No, seriously, I think why can't we all live? That's that. That why is why does that work? Why can't we? Why can't we do that? No compromise required. We just live by these ethical laws. Well, the two problems are: firstly, it's really hard because people oh. are fallible. Um, but Damn secondly, it. you can come across situations where you could create a better outcome by breaking a moral rule. Uh, so, suppose someone comes to your house and they ask you where their intended murder victim is hiding. Uh, and if you say, well, I cannot tell a lie, yes. uh, this is going to lead to a bad outcome of someone oh, being murdered. Yeah, okay. uh, whereas if you say, I saw them running that way, and then you and the murder victim run the other way, you've mm. told a lie, but you've achieved a better outcome. Or if you and your beautiful family are starving to death, and only by stealing a loaf of bread off a rich man's plate, and he'll be fine, he's rich, he's got plenty, uh, mm. can you survive the freezing night, uh, then you break a moral rule. You steal the bread, mm. you give it to your family, your family lives. That's a better outcome. Mm, mm, so, okay. uh, yeah, and the sort of the contrasting ethical view to Immanuel Kant's 
logic-based absolutism, uh, the so-called consequentialist moral theories, uh, the utilitarians are a subset of the consequentialists, and the utilitarians say you should do whatever brings about the best outcome. Forget mm. moral rules. Mm. Uh, forget a rule don't steal. Maybe stealing maximizes utility. And if it does, bloody well do it. Mm. Uh, maybe murdering someone maximizes utility. Do it. Uh, and this seems to account for a lot of our intuitions about things like stealing food from a rich person to survive better than having these really strict moral laws that you just never break. Mm. Uh, so what happens when a utilitarian and a Kantian are put in a position where they might want to compromise? The Kantian won't. Uh, the utilitarian will just look and say, well, OK, those Nazis are coming over the hill with guns and they want me to hand over the Jews. Mm. And they'll just look at all the possible things they could do, uh, including just hand over the Jews. Mm. And they would figure out which of those decisions maximized utility and do that. Now, if it turned out the best thing to do for everyone involved was hand over the Jews, they would do it. If the best thing involved was hide the Jews and lie, they'd do that. And it mm. probably would be in practice, but they wouldn't feel bound by any moral rules. Uh, and a utilitarian you know, with a gun pointed at them will compromise just about any moral rule uh, if that's you know, how yeah. they – utility being maximized. In, in, that, in that very extreme example you just gave, I guess the utilitarian would also say at what level – like where does utility come from? Because if the, if the Nazis say, where are the Jews? We, we know you're hiding them here. If you don't tell us, we're going to kill a thousand people in the town and there's only five Jewish people down. This is a very weird thing. Let's just, let's just stop. Yeah, I just feel like... Uh, yeah, we've gone, I, to, we've gone is... to a very dark place very quickly. But you know what I'm trying to say here? As in, if you're trying to protect someone but only protecting five people to save a thousand people, then that's utilitarian. They would say, well, we're going to give up these five people because... To save a thousand. To save a thousand, yes. yes. That's, a, that's a utilitarian viewpoint. Mm. Okay. And uh, it is worth saying there that utilitarianism uh, here, and we, we're getting into this dark territory, but mm. part of the dark territory is that you can blackmail a utilitarian into doing literally anything as long as you <laughs> credibly convince them all the other alternatives are worse. So make up the most dark, twisted, horrific thing you could imagine. A utilitarian will do it uh, if the only alternative is that plus one more horrible thing. Oh, uh, and okay. so. Uh, yeah. So they are. In, if someone knows you're a utilitarian, you're sort of vulnerable to blackmail in a way that a Kantian isn't. No one is going to bother going up to a Kantian and saying, "Murder a baby, or I'll murder too." Mm. So the Kantian will say, "No, no, I'll have no bar of this. Mm. You do what you like to your two babies. I'll try and stop you, but uh, it's not on my conscience." Mm. Uh, mm. Whereas a utilitarian would go, two is greater than one. Uh, pass me my baby mallet. I've got some <laughs> utility maximizing to do, and it's distasteful. <laughs> I'll feel bad about it, but the the, the Given these two options, it's clear cut that two is more than one, mm. and therefore I must choose the one over the two. So you get in levels of meta-analysis where a smart utilitarian uh, has to think about whether they really maximize utility by pre-committing to some things they just won't compromise on. Mm. Uh, just plant a flag and say you know, the slogan, we will not negotiate with terrorists. Spoiler, the people who say they won't negotiate with terrorists do negotiate with terrorists all the time. But if you plant that flag and say, yep. we will not negotiate with terrorists, then that's a disincentive for people to grab a bunch of hostages and demand a million dollars because yes. they're yep. worried that you'll just go, nope, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And say, Look, 20 people, a million dollars, that's cheap. Oh, mm. come on. Mm. It's only a million. And you say, nope, don't negotiate with terrorists because mm. if you do give them a million, then everyone will be doing it. Uh, whereas if you just say, nope, I've pre-committed to the rule, no deals with terrorists, no ransoms, uh, that means it's less likely that people actually try it in the first place. Mm. Uh, so 
One approach to compromise is that if you are strictly maximizing utility, you should compromise all the time whenever you hit resistance. But if you will know that you're a pushover that way, that's going to lead to worse outcomes. Mm. So you've got to jump up one level of analysis and treat this as not just a decision you make in a vacuum, but as a game you're playing with an opponent or an enemy who wants to manipulate you Mm. because there are bad people out there who want to manipulate you. So when you sort of shift to game theory rather than moral decisions in a vacuum, uh, then it can become smart to say, there are things I'm just not going to compromise on. I've got my moral rules. If you know I'm willing to compromise them, you're going to exploit that. So I'll just commit to never, ever doing that and follow through on it if I have to. Mm. If I say I'm not going to compromise on this and you try to make me compromise, even if it hurts me, I'll go, no, I've planted this flag. I'm sticking with it. And maybe you'll hurt me this time. But the next person who thinks about trying the same thing will say, nah, not worth it. That Kevin bloke won't compromise. I'll go and pick on someone else yeah. who might compromise. You might. It's it's very difficult. I'm I'm try, thinking and, and be very careful about this because I don't know 100%. But I, I always think about like the Irish Troubles, and I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but I know that you had people bombing each other and killing each other, and in the end, though, they had to compromise. They had to people who sit across the table now in governments with people that they're pretty certain were terrorists of some, whatever version of that word of terrorist. I mean, I'm doing the the air quote thing right now, uh, as in. People who definitely hurt other people. They know that. They, on both sides. They all know that everyone did terrible things during the Irish Troubles. But now they run a government and they keep it all together. They've had to compromise. They've had to say, I did terrible things. You did terrible things. But now we're going to sit down and stop doing terrible things and run a government together. We're not just going to say, no terrorists at the, at the government table. No, no, now everyone runs it. Now, people may not agree with that, but it's a, it's compromise that worked to keep, or hopefully, to keep um, uh, peace for a length of time. In cases like that, it's hard to see what other option there could possibly be. That if you've got the Hatfields have been killing McCoys and the McCoys mm. have been killing Hatfields or Palestinians and Israelis mm. or English and Germans, whoever it is, if there's ever going to be peace, there has to be a compromise where both sides mm. agree to say, yeah, you killed a whole bunch of us. We killed a whole bunch of you. We're going to have to draw a line under it mm. because there's no other way I can see uh, except one no, total genocide, one side completely wiping out the other. Mm. Um, but if you want a piece short of that, uh, you're going to have to compromise and put aside more rules like I'm going to get the person who killed my poor yeah. because yeah. there's no other possible way. So I think in cases like that, there seems to me to be a very strong case that not only is compromise permissible, uh, but it's literally the only way forward. You just need to try and set up yes. a situation where there's a compromise and both sides have to keep it. Yes. Because it's no good if you compromise with the Hatfields and they're shooting you in the back the next day. You've got yeah. to somehow find a way to make it binding on both parties. But you've got to compromise in cases like that, or at least I don't see any other alternative uh, for yeah. solving cases like the Irish Troubles or filling the blank of political crisis yeah, here. Like, and uh, hmm. even if uh, one side are the bad guys in some meaningful sense, as long as they're not the kind of bad guys who will just start shooting you again the minute you've made a compromise, uh, maybe you maximize utility or maybe it's the only way to get any real utility is to say, okay, look, you're the bad guys. You started this, you did some bad things, but we're still going to draw a line under it and compromise and have some kind of peace going forward. So there has to be compromising good faith. So if you say, I'm going to compromise, you're hoping or you're banking it'll be in good faith. But if it's, if you then go, actually it was bad faith, they're they're now screwing us over, then of course you don't stand by your compromise because there's no point. Yeah, indeed. And I think one of your uh, 
viewers tweeted something about uh, an unjust man who will urge uh, you to split the difference on your moral values. Yes. Did I'll they read, have something I'll, I'll about read, that? I'll read that out. Yes, I, I, I talked to you about for the for the start of the podcast. I'll just read it out. And uh, so, uh, so meet me in the middle, says the unjust man. You step forward, he steps back. Meet me in the middle, says the unjust man. So, and basically, is and the idea there is they're saying come towards me, and then they step back, and you keep moving forwards, and they're just dragging you more from the. Le- I confirmed this with him, by the way. I I was a bit confused because in my mind, it says here I thought I was like, well, you've just won because you're facing each other, and then you step one step forward where you want to be, and he stepped backwards. Well, I'm a winner. That's great. Mm. And they're like, no, 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 no. You miss. And it actually took two people to explain what was going on, <laughs> which is they're talking about politically, if you're on the left and they're a more, in this case, a right wing person, and then they step more right and they drag you more right. So in the end, everyone's super, super right. And then the whole world's gone mad, supposedly. That's the that's the concept, I believe, behind that tweet. Uh, well, I think that's you know, completely philosophically sound. Now, if I know that you, Gregoire, are a person who will compromise on political views, then I can get you to any political view I want. I just have to sort of double the difference between where you are now and where I want you to be hmm. uh, and adopt that view and say, meet me in the middle. So hmm. uh, if you think we should have really radical action to address climate change in Australia and I think we should do nothing, then I just have to say, hi, Greg, I believe we should start burning forests as a matter of urgency and pump more carbon <laughs> in the atmosphere. Massive amounts, massive amounts. Meet me in the middle. And you say, oh, OK, I'll meet you in the middle on doing absolutely nothing about climate change. And we've yeah. achieved compromise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can get you to if you're willing to make the sort of compromises, then yeah, anyone can get you to adopt any political position just by inventing one twice as extreme mm. as their real but position. But that's bad faith then. In fact, that same person then did say to me, uh, how about, I mean, he said it's a joke, but still someone walks in and says, I'm going to kill all of you. And then you stand up and say, let's compromise. OK, I'll only kill half of you. And then you go, yay, victory. And no, it's not a victory like this. But that's also and that's a joke. It's meant to be a joke. But in my case, in my mind, I went, well, that's not a compromise. It's, it's a, a the whole action itself is bad. I wouldn't be compromising over I'm going to kill all of you. Uh Unless it's, well, why don't you kill yourself first? That's, I don't know if that's a compromise either. Well, I mean, I believe this sort of thing <laughs> has actually happened in real life in some hostage scenarios that people had a chat with the hostage taker and say, look, we'll send you in some pizzas and you send out the pregnant women and children. And they say, mm. oh, OK, we'll compromise. Uh, we'll let some of our hostages go. We won't kill mm. those. We'll give them back to you so we can't kill them. And in exchange, we get something we want. And this sort of give and take bargaining goes on so maybe it's not actually as crazy as you made it sound that if someone comes in and says i'm going to kill all of you in the name of my political ideology and you can say look can we compromise Uh, why don't you look let the kids off they're too young to be you know responsible and shoot the adults you know maybe they'll go for it and if you they go for it you've just saved the lives of those people there you go oh okay so maybe it's not just a joke but yeah it's it's that to me though that's we're back to lifeboat compromises lifeboat ethics mm. at that point so all right but then again maybe and i didn't confirm this with the listener who got in contact with me about this originally maybe they're seeing and let's it could be argued that climate change and the climate crisis is a lifeboat situation mm. that's but that's a whole different thing we, we could we're not we're not we, we can talk about it if you want to but i i feel that's a whole podcast in itself <laughs> Yeah, I think so. That uh, it's an interesting question. If you genuinely believe that a global apocalypse and 
deaths of millions or billions of people and the, the downfall of nations and so on mm. is likely in the next hundred years if we don't do something about climate change. Mm. And there are some people standing between us and doing something about climate change. Mm. Uh, does that uh, mandate uh, extreme political action? Uh, some people would say it does. Some people would say it doesn't. Obviously, it's dangerous talk. And obviously, everyone would be better off if we could resolve this situation peacefully and nonviolently. Mm. Uh, but uh, at some point, I think everyone agrees, you know, if Nazis are taking over Germany and you are German or some equivalent thing is happening uh, with Stalin, Mao, fill in the dictator of choice. Mm. Almost everyone agrees that at some point you are entitled to say this political system has ceased to uh, fulfill the interests and goals of the people. Get the guns and the pitchforks. Let's overthrow this mother. Uh, we so are absolutely smart, smart enough to know better is now violently advocating for the dissolution of the streets. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! No, look. no, no, no. no. Uh, allegedly, no, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> uh, potentially in future scenarios where a dictator is trying to take over or something. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, uh, so back to you know, this issue of people dragging you around by getting you to compromise. I think this is a flaw of democracy in mm. a sense that mm, if we've got a political system where wealth and power is distributed on the basis of a popular vote uh, – and you get people to vote for you by dragging their political views onto the spot you want, mm. uh, then the fact, I think, you know, the reason why we have propaganda campaigns with Twitter trolls pushing extremist views, mm. uh, and the reason why every university election I've ever seen has an extreme left-wing party <laughs> and an extreme right-wing party that are both sock puppets of the real left and the real right, mm. uh, is because uh, we have this human heuristic of thinking the truth must be somewhere in the middle. Uh, and if two people are violently disagreeing, then maybe they should just compromise. Mm. Uh, and so it, you know, it exploits that heuristic in our minds to drag our political opinions one way or the other. And you know, I think that's why we have these uh, Twitter troll farms and Russian disinformation agents and homegrown jerks all expressing extreme <laughs> opinions uh, with the view of getting people to split the difference a bit. And I'd like to say when you say um, extreme positions, what I've noticed is extreme positions on both sides. Yes, uh, it's not just it's not just listener. It's not just the side you disagree with. It's mm. the other side as well. And and you yeah. may find that a bit shocking, but it's I really believe that's true. You may only see the ones that you agree with, but but there's other ones or disagree with you. But you, there's both. There's definitely both happening. And during the we I think we talked earlier about the 2016 election, and during the run up to that election, uh, there were what certainly appeared to be based on analysis from security firms of Russian trolls stoking the fires of outrage and conflict on both sides mm -hmm. uh, by supporting the left and supporting the right in ways that were really annoying and likely to inflame people mm -hmm. because the goal I, mean, I think the goal of the Russian interference was on some level to make it more likely Trump got elected mm -hmm. uh, but in the broader sense it was just to make America politically divided uh, and yeah. uh, ineffective so they easily to the control that's the I mean, mm. I, I mean that's this is maybe gained a bit of political theory here but Facebook has been shown to to um, push you if you're if you're left Facebook will push you more left if you're right Facebook will push you more right because an easily if you're the more extreme you are the more easily you're controlled by the group that you like. Um, hmm. there, was this, there was this phenomenon <laughs> people talked about of Bernie bros uh, who were horrible people who supported Bernie Sanders. Mm. And these Bernie bros were a thing. Uh, and you could see them running around insulting people going, if Bernie doesn't get the nomination, we're not going to vote Democrat. We mm. will hate the Democratic Party and so on. And these people often posted during Moscow business hours and <laughs> vanished uh, as soon as the election was oh over. Uh, so 
I'm sure some of them were legitimate posters, but a lot of them seem to be foreign agents trying to stir up trouble. So mm. it's definitely a thing that if you want to cause trouble, uh, post extreme views on the left and the right. But if you want to normalize you know, moderate right wing views, having a lot of voices posting extreme right wing views and some moderates who can say, I'm not like them, I'm moderate. But, you know, they've kind of got a point mm. uh, can have the effect of dragging. Uh, I believe it's called the Overton window, the range of political views that is considered mainstream to express uh, to the right by having these extreme voices dragging the perimeter of what it's acceptable to say and think and do in a more extreme direction to make a bit more room for the right wing. Uh, so, yeah, that's the danger of compromise. If people know you will compromise, or even they know that the human brain is vulnerable to this attack because of our instinct to compromise, you can exploit that in the same way casinos exploit our you know, bad instincts about gambling. Mm. Uh, these political actors exploit our bad instincts about compromise to change our views. So would you say that's weaponizing compromise? I would say so. I think that's exactly what they're doing. Okay, so we, we, that's cool. I would be... So you have to be aware that if you are being asked to compromise, once again, is it good faith compromise? Is it bad faith compromise? If it's good faith compromise, try and compromise, or maybe. If it's bad, mm. faith, bad faith compromise, don't compromise. And you know, I may like, start a internet uh, war over this, but we talked <laughs> earlier about pre-committing, planting a flag, making a rule. Mm. Maybe it's not a crazy rule to say, I am not going to change my mind no matter what I see on Facebook. I'm not going to change my mind no matter what I see on social <laughs> media. If I go to you know, a science website and you know, read stuff from the science literature, I'll change my mind about that. But if you mm. plant that flag and say, no, nope, you're not going to change my mind, then you're protecting yourself against this kind of manipulation of people mm. trying to drag your views around. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps you know, we, we have this idea that rational people are open to argument. Maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should spread the word. Don't be. Yeah. Don't be open to argument. Well, Stick to your guns. You've got your political views. <laughs> keep them and, like, but, until but, you get a really authoritative source saying otherwise. Yes, yes. It's not that you're sticking to your guns all the time. It's that you say, no, this this platform is only useful to see fun pictures of cats and my friend's children. And that's it. That's what, it's, and that's what I'm going on this horrible, horrible platform for. I'm not there for political views. So as long as you keep mm. that in your head, it's only for cute pictures of cats and other people's kids. Then that's then you won't be well less chance of being manipulated by these stupid things that are bouncing around. Mm. And the bad faith actors will say you should trust people. You should have a good faith discussion, as with an epistemic peer with people. You can't go around being paranoid that everyone's a Russian bot or a troll or a disinfo agent. Mm. Uh, but these people are out there, so I think in a sense you should treat everyone as if they're a potential bot or troll or disinfo agent when you're on the internet, <laughs> because no, those people are. Out there, I mean, mm. this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is computer security companies and governments have all established this and published all their work. Mm. Uh, we know these things are out there. Uh, so I think you know, <laughs> planting a flag and refusing to compromise, of drawing a rule that you're not going to change certain kinds of views, you know, political views or views about highly contested scientific facts that are politically sensitive, like climate change, on the basis of anything you see on social media, that might be a good rule for safeguarding your own intellectual integrity against these kinds of attacks. That's fair enough. So it would be fair to say then, comp is compromise considered the ultimate solution then or no? I guess it, it, what we talked about then really, then it's not. It's not. So I'm, I'm, answer, I'm asking my own question but answering it. It seems that it's compromise could never be considered the ultimate solution, but sometimes it is the right solution. 
I think so. I think that ideally we would never need to compromise because we would just know what was best and we would enact the solution that is best. Mm. Now, we would look at a situation like Ireland during the Troubles or Palestine and we would figure out what a just solution to that conflict was and we'd snap our fingers and bam. And if that means that all the <laughs> Protestants got teleported to London and the Catholics got Ireland or vice versa, uh, then we'd do that, whatever the just outcome is. And I'm not going to even attempt to say what a just outcome would be in any geopolitical hotspot, no, no. Um, but presumably <laughs> a sufficiently informed, rational, moral people could figure it out. Um, but we can't do that in practice. No, so no. the next best thing, the thing we can actually do is just make a deal. How about we just stop shooting each other? First thing, no more shooting, no more bombing. And then we work out some kind of division of resources and land and so on that we can both live with and move forward from there. Would it be Not because fair it's to... perfect, but because it's the best we can do. Would it be fair to say that people don't seem to understand what compromise is? It Compromise... Okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you the dictionary definition. An agreement mm -hmm. or settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. And I think the important word is concessions. In my mind, when I compromise, I feel, I understand that what I want is what I want, but what I'm going to get is less than that. But I, So I drop to 75% of what I want, but you're going to get 75% of what you want. As I know that doesn't add up, but that, you know, we've all got more than what we want. Oh, no, wait. We've all got less. More, we've all got less. Yeah, we, we've all got less than exactly what we want. But between us, we've got more than one person would normally get. So it may feel if you look at it as I didn't get everything I wanted. But you got something as well, then it's a victory. That's that's how I try and look at it. We're all vaguely unsatisfied. <laughs> But it's the mm. only way. And, and, but but one person isn't horribly unsatisfied, and one person's happy. We're both okay. We're not feeling great about it, but we understand why it had to happen. I think that's why it doesn't work very well. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not a compromise unless both parties are giving up something they want, or not getting this something they sincerely believe they're entitled to, mm. uh, or perhaps giving up uh, a belief. Uh, if we're changing our views, that you know, if we're going to agree on uh, how much we owe for dinner, uh, then we're both going to have to, if we're compromising, we'll have, both have to budge on what we think the truth about the world is. Mm. Uh, but it's not a compromise unless both parties do that, yeah. uh, which is why a bad faith actor isn't really getting you to compromise. You know, it feels like a compromise to you, but the bad actor is getting everything they want and maybe more. So it's not a true compromise mm. uh, if it's a bad faith compromise. They've just played you. Yeah, okay. Mm. So, so, and people, I, I feel people forget that, that at the end of a compromise, you're not going to feel great. You're going to understand, but hopefully you'll understand the compromise you made and, the, and you see the compromise they make. And if they don't, if, 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 you know, a couple of weeks pass and you realize that actually that compromise is not, their compromise hasn't eventuated to anything, you don't trust them anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say that makes sense to me. Mm. Okay. Although, I think in the English language, we've got this uh, nuance that compromise is bad. We say he's been compromised. Yes. That's a bad yeah. thing. If I yeah, say I've right. compromised my principles, that's yes. a bad. I was thinking about just before I called you, I think there's a term. Oh, he compromised his ethics. That means he's done a bad thing. And you're like, oh, wait, hmm. so compromise is a bad thing? Like, is it, it always, I mean, English is a ridiculous language that makes no sense. So, you know. Uh, it, it, is compromise bad? Should we never compromise? I just, oh dear. No, no, that's, we, yeah, we, I, we, well, we've decided that's a bad idea. That's 
Mm, yeah, I think we've got to be careful of language influencing our views because on some level we've got these associations in our mind between compromise and bad. So mm, if mm. someone says to an English language speaker, let's compromise, uh, we've got these associations, hang on, maybe compromise is inherently a bad thing and we should be trying to avoid compromising. But I think that's wrong. I think that that's just a linguistic association. I think there's good compromise between good faith actors and epistemic peers, and that is a good kind of compromise. And it's just a different meaning of the word to say, he's been compromised if we mean you know, the Russians have got him uh, and now he's working <laughs> for them like in a spy movie or yeah, something. That's yeah. just a different meaning of the word compromise uh, that doesn't, cast a shadow on good faith compromise between equals. Okay. So as a philosopher, what would be your take on getting a good outcome from compromise in, a, in these big things? Because let's face it, I, people are talking at the moment about certain actors in power. Politicians are saying, no, we're not going to do anything about climate change. We don't believe in it, in, especially in this country of Australia. We don't believe in it. It's not a real thing. Or they, even if they don't say that, they, they just pretend it's not happening. Uh, or they say, oh, it's definitely happening, but we, we can't do anything about it or whatever it is. They find a different reason. And then other people are like saying, we have to stop, uh, without being silly, like we can't have any more mines. We can't have any more. We've got to start doing a lot more stuff. How do we, how do we compromise then? How do you reach that when, when both people are entrenched in what they think? I think it's a really hard question, maybe an impossible question to solve at the popular level, because you've got this huge problem. How do you provide electricity to every house in Australia? Uh, that's a huge, difficult technical problem. And I imagine there are only a handful of people in the entire nation who really have their minds fully across the issue of getting electricity to every single house in the nation. Mm. Uh, and there'd be different, you know, if you got all those experts together and the experts on renewable energy and engineers and so on in one room, then maybe with all that expertise, you could map out various ways forward for Australia's energy policy. Uh, should we go all green? And if it's not green, where should we have a compromise? Should we have gas turbines? Should we have so-called clean coal? Uh, should we try and import a nuclear power plant from the yeah. USA? What should we, you should look at all these options. Um, but they're all detailed and technical. And at the level of popular political debate, where people are just shouting at each other, yay, wind power, boo, wind power, mm. neither can be right in the kind of level of detail you need to actually have an energy policy for Australia. So you've got this sort of weird situation where most of us are reduced to standing outside the window of Parliament House, waving a placard, yelling, yay, green things, or boo, green things, yay, coal, mm. and hoping that this pushes the experts inside the building who have all this information and are best of all of it uh, to try and take our ill-informed views into account in some sense and say, well, the people outside, they're all yelling, yay, wind power. So why don't we have 5% more wind power and wind farms here, here and here, and we phase out that gas turbine over there. And yep. I think that's all you can really hope for at the popular waving a placard level, because we just don't have the expertise to get down to the nuts and bolts and mm. you know, redefine an energy policy, except in these really broad terms. Does that uh, mean, though, but does that, does that mean, though, that have you just said that you therefore, if you're, let's say, you really do believe that we need to change the uh, the way that energy is generated in this country right now and across the world. Otherwise, you know, the whole world will die uh, very soon or at least make it very unlivable, very dangerous to live. Then don't compromise because you need to be screaming and yelling because maybe it will push the political side of things further over. Is that? Well, I, th mm, I think we actually got to get meta here again and said, mm. if 
both sides would compromise on compromise, we could do that. If the shouters <laughs> on both sides could say, we'll both have a deal, we'll stop expressing extreme opinions, and we'll all start having nuanced opinions. We'll mm. all get together on Facebook, <laughs> and someone will say, uh, I'm actually not totally against gas turbines. And so I say, well, I'm not a fan of those, but can we all agree that wind power mm. in a windy place is pretty good? And now we can have those sort of conversation. Mm. Uh, but if the other side isn't willing to compromise, if they're just going to post memes saying global warming is fake, then you know, mm. uh, compromise is off. I'm just going to go back, get my placard out with a you know, picture of the earth on fire on mm. it and sit outside Parliament House yelling, green, green, green. Uh, and we'll have the debate that way. But what I was saying is I think we mm. can't – there's no point getting into the technical details on Facebook really mm. uh, because if someone says, I have a technical quibble with wind power, uh, then you know, none of us is really in a position to uh, give us a detailed plan about how we transition to a renewable Australia. Uh, maybe it's mm. impossible. Some smart people seem to think it is possible and even affordable, that it's well within – our country's capabilities. Well, Dr. Uh, but we've I've talked to Dr. Joel Gilmore on this very podcast, and and he did a whole report saying actually we could go fully green, uh, no nuclear. That's that was his report. So yeah, it's one man and his organisation think that's possible. So that's a hmm. that's a side note. Yeah, and I think Joel is a very smart man, and if he says possible, I think it's highly likely that it is possible, but mm. could I do the maths and prove it? Heck mm. no. Uh, no. I, I'm not his epistemic peer. Uh, all I can do is say, this Joel person is saying something that sounds right, mm. and he says he's worked it out. Mm. Have I checked his maths? No. 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 But I, I, I kind of believe him because... And we have to, and we have to, in that case, you have to say, well, his, his peers, his peer review mm. have, would have gone through his thesis and gone, here's why you're right and here's why you're wrong. Uh, yeah, yeah. it's the idea behind peer review that mm. epistemic peers have hashed all this out and they've arrived at the right compromise. That if I publish a paper that's a bit too extreme, it goes to peer review. My peer reviewers, my epistemic peers say, whoa, Kev, rein it back in a bit. Mm. Uh, and then the final version goes out. And hopefully it's something that resembles the best possible compromise of the competing views by the relevant experts. And mm. in theory, at least that's why peer review is good, because it's the right kind of compromise. Mm. It's compromise between well-informed epistemic peers having a good faith discussion. Okay. Right. In theory. In theory. So would it be fair, to wrap this up then, would it be fair to say what we need to do, whatever side you're on, if, and, if, and even that's ridiculous because we're all on the same side, we're all human beings, and, you know, there's, there's that, you know, this, this high. Anyway, that's that's a different story again. But we're all trying to live. We're all trying to do our best. I try and keep that in mind. There's, there are people who are, I think, are bad and evil or whatever you want to call them. But a lot of us are just on the bell curve. We're all in the middle doing. We're just trying to do our best, man. You know what I mean? We're just trying hmm. to we're just trying to live and have happiness and 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 not be shits to each other. I, I honestly believe that. I, I got called an optimist recently, and I don't think I am. I think I'm a realist. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm still angry about being called an optimist. I don't know why. I find I find I, I felt like someone had said you're dumb and I hate you. Anyway, but that, that's my that's my problem, not not yours. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so. Would it be fair then at the end of this podcast to say what we need to do is become more nuanced in what we're talking about? Whatever side you're on or whatever position you're taking, understand that position to the best, to the deepest level that you possibly can in your area. Now, if that's you can only read things on the Internet, make sure there are a wide range of things. If you can research more then go deeper. If you can study it, study it. But 
don't just espouse someone else's view, question the view and get a more, a grittier look at the whatever version of the problem it is. Yeah, I think so. I think that in an ideal world, we'd all try to be informed epistemic actors uh, who respect other people's efforts in the same area, that uh, I would respect your efforts to become informed, you would respect mine, and when we encounter disagreement, uh, we'd talk about the details and the nuances and try and figure out who is right and why. Uh, from a starting point, uh, assuming good faith actors, mm. that each of us is as likely to be wrong as the other, that mm. I think a Christian is likely to be wrong about God. They think I'm likely to be wrong. You can't have a good faith discussion unless we both sort of put down the guns and the walls in some sense and say, you know, look, I'm going to accept maybe I'm wrong. If you accept maybe you're wrong. And then we talk through it in detail, uh, because otherwise, you know, you're just hiding behind a parapet, firing shots at each other rather than coming down, meeting in the middle and trying to find where the truth lies. Uh, but on the Internet, where there are bad faith actors, uh, if you don't know a person, if they're a stranger to you, then you say, well, maybe I'm not going to change my views at all because of anything you say, because I can't trust that you're a good faith actor. You could be a complete liar about everything you're telling me. And if I compromise with you, then I'm compromising the negative sense. I become compromised. Mm, mm. Uh, so if you know someone and trust them, you should both try to be as epistemically informed as you can and then engage as peers. Mm. And if you can't do that, uh, you should respect other people's expertise and say, well, Greg, you know more about science than I do. I'm going to ask you a science question and I'm going to provisionally believe whatever you tell me because until I hear some, you know, mm. some equal source contradicting you. Yeah. Uh, and it's, so, yeah, after you. No, that's it's it's. And I, I always like to try to give people concrete answers uh, on the podcast as well. Something I recently read about, and I really like this concept. When someone has a different point of view to you, and especially one you don't like, one of the ways to to get them to come over to your ideas, or for you to learn that maybe you've misunderstood them, is not just you say you're wrong, but to say take a position of lesser understanding that you probably have pretend if you have to you say well, kevin you said x i don't understand x i am silly can you please explain x to me and then let them go through the logical step you just sit back and talk and listen let them talk at you and why x works and then you can say oh now you've said x is this and x is x but what about this and you can throw in a little bit of a I don't understand again, and they may never come around to your point of view, but if you're not aggressive, if you're actually saying, I'm interested, let's have a conversation and bring in some sideways concepts, you may bring them around, or you may learn something, horrors of horrors. Does that sound oh, proper? That's a very interesting idea I haven't heard before, and I'd like to hear you explain it to me more. I do have a question, though, a little thing I'm confused about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, doesn't that make you a little bit of a bad faith actor yourself because you're not really representing your real views and opinions? Um, I can see that. That's a <laughs> that's a good point. I, I don't think I should lie. I, I wouldn't lie from the state day one. So if, let's say you say, I believe X, and I would say, well, I believe Y. That's why we're having the conversation. And X and Y could be quite diametrically opposed. And then you're, and you say, oh, well, only stupid people believe Y. Let's say you're you're more aggressive. But then I say, well, I don't. Maybe I don't understand X. Could you please explain your point in X? I'm not giving up. I'm not lying about my position on Y. I'm just saying you speak about X and justify the X in a way that you will make more sense. I, I don't feel it's bad faith. I think it's 
it's trying to get them to f- maybe find the flaw. I, I maybe in my mind, it's almost tricking them into realizing them wrong. Not tricking them, pointing out the dirty, great logical hole in their argument <laughs> that they're going to fall into. And I think that if you are doing that in good faith, that's a fine thing that you're doing. That's a good way to approach someone. But a bad faith actor can do what you're doing too. And what they're really doing there is they're saying, I'm going to remain safe in my fortress of silence. I'm not going to give away anything. I'm not going to give you any targets. I want you to lay out your entire case for me. And then I'm going to get out my sniper rifle. I'm going to pick the <laughs> one weak point or the one uh... place where you've got a little misconception and pew, I'm going to ask the awkward question there. I just didn't understand this one thing. You right. said this. Yep. Sit back, twitch your thumbs, that uh, you're making them take all the risks and make their whole hmm. case while you're you know, sitting safely uh, from your okay. position of, I'm silly, I don't know anything. Uh, and then pew, you can you know, target uh, the weakest part in their argument. So mm-hmm. I think you know, what you're doing is something that you know, teachers do. And I think mm-hmm. it's fine in that context if you're saying, look, I'm going to be Socrates uh, and ask the hard questions, but I'm a teacher and I've got a goal here uh, and we're both accepting our roles in this exchange. That's fine. Um, but you know, what you're doing is something that good people can do for good reasons and bad people can do as a way of avoiding exposing the weak points in their own argument because mm. maybe your opinion is really stupid. Maybe your opinion is riddled with logical flaws, but because you're not trying to lay them out in front of the other person as a target, they're all concealed. You're safe. You could have the stupidest position in the world, um, yes. but they're taking all the risks of putting their argument out in the open yeah. uh, where you can snipe at it. It's like pulling a cracker, which you talked about on the, on the Christmas cracker which you've talked about in the podcast before, the best way to win is, mm-hmm. as in getting the prize, is not to pull. If, if we hold a cracker together and you pull on the cracker, I am much, have a much greater chance of ending up with the prize in my hand. Never pull Oh, where cracker. were you a couple of weeks ago? Where I... is this information when I need it? I should listen <laughs> to your podcast. You really should. More people should. Uh, and uh, we, in fact, we did once have listeners send in a wonderful photo of them holding a cracker for like, we, we sat, we sat here for an hour, just like both holding their weight. <laughs> so that's how you win it. And, uh, but I, you're right though. If you don't give your information up. So once again, it's good faith versus bad faith and humans have been spending millions, if not billions of years, or not as humans, but at least as living things trying to work out, is that creature friendly? Is it trying to eat me? Is it, you know, are they going to try and kill me? Can I mate with them? Do they want me to mate with them? It's a whole box of dice. So, once again, it's, is it, be empathetic to people around you, understand that they are humans going through stuff as well. Even if you disagree with each other, most of the time, there's more similarities and differences, but sometimes you're going to find people who are just out to make problems for everyone. To feather their own yeah. nest, maybe. I would agree with all of that. And I'd like to put forward an alternative to the you explain your story to me and I'll shoot at oh, it uh, yes, model yes. of trying to uh, convince people. Not as something – I'm not saying you should never do that. Uh, as I said, if you're doing it in good faith, I think it's fine. Uh, but an alternative is what uh, in philosophy is called an error theory. Mm. Uh, and the idea behind uh, error theory is that uh, if – you are trying to change someone's opinion radically about something. They think the earth is flat. You're trying to convince them that it's a sphere. It's a really radical change. Then you don't just need a compelling case for why the earth is round. You need a compelling explanation for why they thought it was flat. Uh, that doesn't make them out to be an idiot. Uh, so if someone comes at you with a crazy belief, uh, you've got to not just be able to tell them the truth and have evidence of the truth, but also give them a narrative for how they came to be wrong 
in such a way that they're not crazy and they're not being unreasonable. Mm. Uh, so that's another potential that's approach to difficult, give though, people an out. Because, yeah. because you may say, oh, I, let's, let's get to brass tacks. Climate, human-induced climate change is, is backed up with science. Okay, So humans are pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It is causing a rising of carbon dioxide, and this is leading to more extreme weather events on planet Earth. Okay, I think we're confident to say the science is in on that. Uh, hopefully you're not going to disagree. No, indeed not. <laughs> okay, uh, that's it. My, so, yeah. but, pe- but people do. People do. And, hmm. and if you said someone came and said, and people do say it, and if they come up and say it to you and you say, well, here's why it's incorrect and here's why I think you're wrong. You've been led astray by right-wing media or you've believed weird actors or, or you don't want to lose your job in a coal mine because your only job is driving trucks in a coal mine. It's a well-paid job and you will never get paid that money working at coals or doing an, an equally unskilled job somewhere else. They're going to get angry at you, not because you're wrong, but because you're, um, you're right and it affects their life. Yeah, in theory, uh, I think if they were a rational, uh, good yeah. faith participant, um, you could say, look, I can show you, here's the, the network of all the atmospheric scientists who have particular views, and they all agree on this particular conclusion. And here's all the people who disagree, and you can trace their sort of epistemic network back to outfits like the Institute for Public Affairs. And you can say, oh, look, and this institute is largely funded by fossil fuel billionaires who have a particular vested interest. So you can so what what accounts for your error, uh, multi-million dollar propaganda campaigns from organizations that clearly have a vested interest in you having a particular opinion. Mm, mm. Uh, so if you could show people all of that, then perhaps they might look at the evidence on one side and the other and say, you know, actually it does make more sense that all the scientists saying this thing with the evidence behind them are more likely to be right than a group of people who have a clear conflict of interest when it comes to the issue. Because if you're a climate scientist, I mean, notionally at least, your income does not depend on saying climate change is real or the earth is getting hotter. You get paid the same, whatever the thermometer says. People, uh, whereas, that, 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 that it's an argument. People say they're only doing it for research money. And then I always laugh and say, you've obviously never worked in academia. There's not a lot of research money. Mm. They're, not, they're not making millions on this. They just have a job. Oh, they wouldn't have a job anyway. Yeah, they would. They would still be climate scientists if the climate was great because their job would be to work out how to keep it great. Like it, mm. there, aren't more they, clim- there aren't more climate scientists now that we're in a climate crisis. There's still the same number of climate scientists, oh, percentage-wise, I mean. I'm, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and I, these people also don't seem to uh, – they don't believe that research is really research. Uh, they believe that what's really going on is you say, I would like $50,000 to prove the thing you want to prove. Mm, mm, uh, yeah. Then the research body goes, I did want that you to prove that for me. Here's the money. Don't come back without the result mm. we want, uh, as opposed to – People think it's really research where it's I want fifty thousand dollars to answer this question and I don't know what the answer is going to be. And notionally, the funding sources say that is a good question. We don't know what the answer is either. Mm. Take the money, go find out, get back to us, tell us the truth about this. But even in real research, I doubt very rarely do you go in there totally blind. You say my thesis is carbon uh, burning fossil fuels is increasing carbon in the atmosphere and this is leading to an increase of climate instability. That's your thesis. That's your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And then you prove it or you disprove it. That's that's science. And then a paper says, my hypothesis was X. Here's the facts that say that's right. My conclusion, I was right. Or my hypothesis was X. The facts don't back that up. X is incorrect. And that's, yeah, that's a real paper. I, 
Yeah, and this is hard to explain to people. And one of the things about the climate debate is, or any debate, is that it's tough being the person who has to explain the complicated idea. Mm. Uh, they've got a simple idea, them scientists is all crooked. And then you have to explain the complicated <laughs> idea that the reason why science works is we have developed this network of safeguards to stop the fact that you think you know what the right answer is uh, from influencing the answer you get. So we've got blinding. Uh, we've got the rules. You've got to state your hypothesis in advance and mm. what will count as proof of your hypothesis in advance before mm. you collect the data. Mm. Uh, and if you do all that and you do it right and you do it legitimately, I think that does count as evidence for your hypothesis. Mm. Without those safeguards, they'd be absolutely right that science would just be an exercise in confirming what you already believed. Uh, but if you've got all these methodological safeguards, hope and you carry it out in good faith, uh, then hopefully science works. But you know, that's a complicated thing to get across to people who are convinced that they're all just making up results for grant money. Uh, you can say, well, no, no, there are all these complicated safeguards and procedures and yeah. rituals that are part of the scientific method. And if you follow these rituals, truth comes out. It minimizes go, uh, the chance uh, of fake, yeah. yeah. And um, mm. whatever we do, don't tell people anything about Karl Popper and falsification theory. Oh, my God. Because in the end, nothing is possibly worked out. Nothing can be true. Everything is, it's just bad news. So don't mention Karl Popper. Yeah, and if possible, don't even tell them about p-values because then they'll get the idea oh, yes. that five percent scientific results are false positives, and yes. then where will oh, it be? Every time, every, the, <laughs> we're all every time they don't like a result, they'll just be, oh, it's probably one of the five percent false positives. Okay, so we're going to compromise. We're going to say try and be mean, more nuanced in your arguments. Compromise can be useful for good faith, but our compromise is we're not going to tell about Karl Popper and we're not going to tell about p-values. That that sounds like a good compromise. Uh, that's right, and also. Give people an explanation of why they're wrong that doesn't make them feel like an idiot. Uh, give them a theory to explain their error because, you know, I think you would understand, you know, psychologically yourself, if someone confronts you with a claim that really strongly goes against something you believe, uh, then part of your brain is going, this is unlikely to be true, this thing they're telling me, because it conflicts so strongly with this thing I already believe. And if they want to shift you, then they're going to have to explain, no, this is the truth, but also this is how I deconstruct your country. This is how I explain to you how you got it wrong. And if you can see how you got it wrong, as well as see all the evidence for the truth, then maybe you'll change your mind. Uh, whereas if I've got a mountain of evidence for my belief and a mountain of evidence for your belief you just presented me with, but I've still got all the reasons to believe I originally had, uh, uh, some people will compromise and meet in the middle. Most people won't. Mm. They'll just say, I like my mountain better than your mountain. I'm going to stay on my mountain. It can be hard to shift people. Kevin, I'm sure somewhere out there, there is a philosophical crime going down that you need to leap into action for. So I won't take any more of your time up. Thank you very much for chatting to us today on the podcast. Always a great pleasure, Greg. So thanks to Kevin once again. If you have a philosophy, morality, an ethical question that you'd like Kevin and myself to dwell on, get in contact on Twitter at SE2KB, or of course you can email me greg at smartenough.org. Otherwise, have a fantastic month of January and we will see you all very soon. Bye.